0: Women around the world are waking up in statistically the most dangerous place for them on earth, the home. And with new restrictions in place due to COVID-19, they can't leave. Women are most likely to be killed in their home by an intimate partner or a family member. And this usually coincides with years of domestic abuse. We are in a moment of two pandemics. Firstly, we have the health pandemic that has touched every corner of the globe, the coronavirus. And then we have this other pandemic that is affecting far more people than we understand or that we'd really like to admit, and that's domestic abuse. Today, we'll be looking at both of these pandemics coinciding with each other. What do we know about the domestic abuse pandemic? And from what we know about events in history, What long-lasting effects could the current health pandemic, the coronavirus, have on women and abuse in the future? This episode touches on a small part of a very big picture, and it's really just scratching the surface. There's lots more work and theories to unpick, but we'll just try and start at the beginning. If you're listening to this episode and at any point you need help, please check out the episode notes today as there are helplines for any support needed. You're listening to Shut Up, She's Talking, and today we're speaking about a tale of two pandemics. And to do that, we're going to be having a chat with author and investigative journalist Jess Hill. Jess wrote a book in 2019 called See What You Made Me Do. She spoke to men and women who have either experienced abuse or in some cases have been the abusers. See What You Made Me Do is an incredible window into home lives that we just don't often get to see or hear about. Jess is an investigative journalist and has been a correspondent in the Middle East. So I wanted to know... How did Jess stumble across this subject of domestic abuse?
1: Yeah, it was quite accidental. I'd never imagined that this would be my calling. I mean, I'd I'd always been interested in, I guess, in women's issues for want of a better term, but I didn't actually get into it until 2014, around the time of the Victorian Royal Commission into Domestic Violence after the murder of Luke Batty in Victoria and the non-stop advocacy of Rosie Batty, his mother, I was asked to do a long-form feature by Nick Fyke, the editor of The Monthly, on on domestic violence. And that was really the first time I had thought twice about it. I mean, obviously, like everyone else, I'd been horrified by what happened to Luke. But um, aside from that, it had not really entered my my personal experience. I did not think I had any family history of it and I had little to no understanding of it. And it took a long time for me to actually get a sense of the enormous scale of it instead of trying to understand it as this phenomenon that occurs between two people in a relationship but understanding how it occurs on a society-wide level and how it is you know perpetuated throughout the legal system and also i guess that at the nexus of it is power and control
0: Jess entered this field with a background in investigative journalism. So she's a master at getting straight to the facts, sifting through the shit, the weeds, and finding the core of issues, stories, and investigations. And any investigative journalist worth their salt never gives up. And Jess has this relentless work ethic. You you can tell just by reading her book that the details... Are at the core and they shine. We think we know what domestic abuse looks like, but there is a reason why we call this abuse and not domestic violence anymore. Violence leaves traces of evidence, abuse doesn't always leave a mark, and so it can be really hard to identify. Abuse isn't always physical like violence is and just from looking at someone you might not be able to tell that they are being abused. Over time, the knowledge we have of domestic abuse has changed. Although the battered wife cowering in the corner is still imprinted in our minds when we think of abuse, research has come a long way and we know more about how perpetrators work. So I asked Jess... How comprehensive is our knowledge of domestic abuse?
1: Until the 1970s, it was not comprehensive at all. If you wanted to read, you know, in the mid-60s, the literature on domestic abuse, you could pretty much do that in one afternoon. But since the 70s and since the shelters really opened up in in the mid-70s, since we stopped talking to perpetrators and using them as research for how their wives felt about domestic abuse, I think that we have, I mean, we've established an incredible knowledge base. Especially, I've got to say, in Australia, and I can say that particularly because I had to revise the book for various editions. The US, I spent six months revising the book for American readers, another few months for UK readers. And I have to say, the, the variety of statistic and, and information and research done in Australia is so rich that when I was trying to find the equivalence in the US, which is a country of more than 300 million people, which you would think would have even just state-based statistics that you could use to extrapolate out to the whole, there was often no equivalent. And so I think that in Australia, especially over the last five years, but even, you know, probably the last 10 to 15 years, we've actually had an incredible research base on this. And ANROWS, which is the federal research body, they do ongoing, really amazing research that puts us in a, in a really good position to understand this.
0: In the journey to understand domestic abuse throughout the years, it has had many faces. One face is a familiar one perhaps and that's the battered woman. This has become a model for experts and is what we recognise domestic abuse as in the West. The battered woman syndrome focuses a bit more on physical violence but there's definitely emotional violence in there as well. But this is when a woman is subjected to abuse and is perhaps in denial that it's really happening or believes she calls the abuse. So it's her fault um, and ultimately she's to blame. Another face of the abused woman is the feminine masochist. Sigmund Freud, the founding father of psychoanalysis, wrote essays in the 1930s about masochism and theorised the feminine masochist. It's a theory of pain and humiliation tied with love forgiveness and reward so she fantasizes about violence and the more she suffers the more love and forgiveness she will expect in return Ultimately, she likes it. Now, that may be oversimplifying this theory somewhat, but that's basically what Freud is saying. And that was the primary reason, apparently, as to why women weren't leaving, because they either liked it or because they felt that the more pain they experienced, the greater the love would be that they shared with their partner. Freud said this was learned through childhood too. So after a naughty child had received um, their punishment, however painful it may have been, usually after that came an element of forgiveness from the parent to the child or a reward or hugs and love. Really ingrains this idea of when pain is had and when punishment is had, soon after love will be there too. This theory has also, I think, made its way into our psyches and is reflected in what we see in literature and in film and in Hollywood. I mean, the narrative arcs in our favourite love stories leads characters to pain and suffering and rejection and heartbreak before the happy ending. So we've been conditioned to see and to forgive pain and potentially some abuse in search for a happy ending and, and for our own love story. So throughout the years, we've seen these different faces. We've seen the masochist woman. We've seen and the battered wife syndrome. Both of these focused a lot on physical violence and, and women cowering in the corner and being physically weaker than men. And in the 1970s, something happened after the women's movement, which meant refuges for domestic abuse victims began opening up. And for the first time, they were recording the type of abuse that these women were actually suffering from their perspective. And it's the stories from these refuges in the 1970s and beyond that have formed our knowledge and theories about domestic abuse now. Support workers back then were familiar with violence, but for the first time, survivors were telling stories of coercive control For the first time, people listened to the everyday details of these victims and researchers were shocked, mainly because it sounded very familiar. They were telling stories where their abusers would isolate them from their friends and families, enforce strict rules to preoccupy their day so they had no time left but to serve the abuser, And slowly indoctrinate them so that their whole identity became about their abuser and they were ultimately captive in their own home. Before these stories of control, researchers only knew of one time in history when this had happened before. When a group of people had been brainwashed, essentially, turned their backs on the ones they loved to stay and serve the enemy
2: three years ago the united states was stunned by an announcement from war torn korea u.s army private david hawkins and 20 other prisoners of the communists had become turncoats they had renounced their own country and disappeared behind red china's bamboo curtain. does anybody want to go home no
0: The study that these researchers were all too familiar with in the 1970s, takes us all the way back to the 1950s, when Korea was in the midst of a civil war. North Korea was backed by the Soviet Union and China, and South Korea was backed by the United States. The Cold War was in full swing. Psychological warfare, propaganda, espionage, that was all at its height. But it's the tactics and techniques applied to American prisoners of war in Chinese camps in Korea that make up the basis of our knowledge on coercive control today. These exact methods were applied to domestic abuse victims
1: the first real mapping of coercive control was done by this U.S. Air Force sociologist, Albert Binerman, and he did that after U.S. soldiers returned from the Korean War, from the prisoner of war camps, and they had shocked the American public in how much they had you know looked like they were collaborating with the enemy and they were confessing to false atrocities and really you know really bad ones and they had informed on fellow prisoners and some of them had even defected to china after they had been freed and to the american mind this was just outrageous and a sign of well they couldn't pick it pick out whether it was a sign of bad mothering um and mm. then they they landed Interesting. on <laughs> that was that was the first thing it was um it was something like gone soft itis or something you know mummy itis yeah. or i can't remember the term they used but you know they tried everything to basically blame it on anyone but the actual soldiers but they they came to the point where it was like this is a sign of brainwashing these soldiers have been brainwashed and and they have the the, the soviets have developed some machine where you can erase all of man's memories and thoughts and install entirely new ones. But a bunch of people, and especially in the U.S. Air Force, thought this sounded really dodgy, and Albert Biederman was one of them. And so he decided to, shock horror, actually interview the return servicemen instead of just making up what had happened to them and ask them, well, what did they do to you in those camps? And by interviewing them, he was able to get what was basically the same architecture of a story from everyone he talked to which was that there were essentially eight techniques that the captors used against them that all culminated in three effects which was dependency debility and dread and they were things like isolation monopolizing the prisoner's perception so making them focus inward on what they were doing and what they could change you know in themselves to alter their circumstances degradation threats Alternating punishments with rewards, so sometimes being kind and generous and, and reinstating a, a type of security and then, you know, betraying that again. And what Biederman found was that these eight techniques were mostly entirely non-physical. So when he came back to testify to Congress and various other places about what had happened to these men, he did not include physical violence on that list and when people said, well, how could you possibly get people to behave like that without being physically violent? He said, well, don't get me wrong, there were often and sometimes like sadistic levels of violence used against these men, but actually violence was not core to getting them to do what, they want, do what the captors wanted them to do. In fact, sometimes the physical violence would go against what the captors were trying mm. to do, which was to override the man's autonomy, to basically take over their perspective and as such, so that the man would be seeing his world through his captor's eyes as a way of securing himself. So it wasn't It wasn't until the 70s, 80s, women and children start to flee to these newly opened refuges. And so their testimonies start to really build up. And what a lot of these shelters are finding is that they can finish the stories before the women have stopped telling them. And they found, um, Diana Russell particularly, now the late Diana Russell, she just died a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. She wrote this book, Rape in Marriage, and she took what were now the universally acknowledged sort of techniques of coercion and ran them alongside the now acknowledged techniques of um, of domestic abuse, and found that they were practically identical. And a lot of the research now is on the fact that anybody who wants to override another person's autonomy and to to override their independence and gain a type of control over somebody will either strategically or even spontaneously recreate these same techniques so be they cult leaders be they human traffickers be they you know political prisoner takers anyone who is keeping someone in a state of captivity who wants to change their captive's behavior and basically train them into a state of compliance uses these same techniques.
2: Does anybody want to go home? No.
0: American soldiers turned their backs on returning to their family in the USA and instead they went to China. China had done what no country had done before in war. They managed, through different techniques, to change the state of their prisoners' minds from captives to willing communists. This is the first case study we really have in history of coercive control. The terrifying thing that Jess just spoke of was that whether perpetrators are spontaneously or strategically using these methods, they use methods of coercive control to hold their victims captive, And this can turn even the most patriotic American soldier into a turncoat. These incredibly successful warfare techniques were seen in the 1970s as families flocked to the support centres and refuges. And as Jess said, those working with victims could almost finish their sentences. Humans somehow across borders, across homes and the military have worked out how to take over the brain and control the mind. And that is our basis of domestic abuse today. These American soldiers were taken by a military they knew to be the enemy. But women do not have this same combat training.
1: What they were subjected to was something that even soldiers trained to give nothing else away but their name and their, you know, numbers could not resist. And yet these prisoners of war were taken captive by people they knew to be the enemy and women are taken captive by men who they have no reason to suspect. There is very little way that you can be sure or pick up on early what's happening because the very nature of coercive control is to fool you into thinking that nothing is going on and is to, in that drip, 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 death by a thousand cuts, frog and boiling water, you know, is to gradually immerse you in this system um, in a way that is very difficult to detect, which other people outside, so friends, family, may see the changes happening in you. And may see the way that your partner treats you, if, if they are so overt, and may be alarmed by that. But the system that you're being um, inoculated into is, doing, is, is basically set up so that you are focusing inwards on what you can change, how you can help your partner, all on you and not on them.
2: Every woman I have ever worked with has a safety zone an area in their life, it could be a supplemental relationship, it could be an object, it could be almost anything, place in their life that they can go to feel free and breathe the air of a free person. And these guys go on search-and-destroy missions, they listen to this, the phone messages, they go through the computer, they go through the drawers, they go through the pocketbooks. Every place that you might breathe the air of a free person, they are trying to be there and choke you off. Learning that violence is not always visible, and that it takes the form of coercive control, is a very important issue. Because in order to commit domestic violence, you have to have proximity to a victim. In order to commit coercive control, you do not. Coercive control is an amazing form of oppression because it crosses social space. And in order to investigate and interdict coercive control, you have to follow coercive control through social space. You gotta follow the surveillance, you gotta follow the stalking, you gotta follow all of the elements that allow the perpetrator to continue to be in control when she's at work, when she's shopping, when she's at her mother's house, when she's at the hairdressers. All of those are sites throughout the entire community. Much more effective in that sense than physical uh, violence. That was Evan Stark, an award-winning
0: researcher, sociologist and forensic social worker who has been writing, talking and researching domestic abuse since the 1980s. He actually worked with the UK government on new laws around domestic abuse based on his writings about coercive control. When coercive control takes full form, Victims can develop a Stockholm Syndrome so powerful that they believe following these rules and obeying this person is their identity, the reason for why they exist. This is what we understand now about domestic abuse, but a huge problem is many of our laws haven't caught up to this. So even though we know that perpetrators control victims in many different ways, the law in Australia does not take the full scale of an abuser's controlling behaviour into consideration when prosecuting. So recent changes into UK law means that courts are able to prosecute abusers for using coercive control. In Australia, those techniques are not illegal, and so it's not illegal to isolate somebody from their family. If you cut somebody off from their mother. That isn't considered a crime. This is where a lot of abuse gets lost and escalating controlling behaviour is pushed aside because physical violence isn't happening. Many survivors have opened up to Jess, and with her coercive control research, she has seen that in many cases abusers can show no warning signs but change overnight. It's hard to look out for warning signs if your partner's behaviour towards you changes so rapidly. Some partners have been in happy relationships for years and upwards of 20 years before some abuse may start. There are risk moments in a relationship and so I asked Jess if she could tell us a little bit more about some of these trigger moments.
1: There are a number of red flag moments you know for where or risk moments in a relationship. A pregnancy is a risk moment, a new marriage the birth of a child, anything where there is a new level of commitment or, as some people would say, and it depends on what kind of perpetrator you're dealing with, but, you know, once somebody is married, if the perpetrator is quite cunning and strategic, their trap has been laid and and the woman's sort of already there. I think for a number of perpetrators, even though deliberate, you know, domestic abuse is deliberate, it's not always strategic in that way that, like, they set out from the beginning to just love bomb their partner and then they're going to, once they get them trapped, treat them abominably. Actually, for a lot of guys, it's this um, there is a triggering in the intimate relationship where the all of the potential for oneness, all of the things that they deeply want are all there and that's part of that idealised version of the relationship that can be there for months you know, at the beginning where the woman feels like the most respected and loved she's ever felt and it's just a fantasy. So in those first few months, everything is possible, but intimacy demands so much of us, especially now um, in these modern times, and demands a lot of men that men have not been really socialised to do, which is to be vulnerable, to be emotional, to depend on their partners. A lot of those feelings feel like shameful For some men, especially men who are really socialized into, you know, kind of patriarchal ideology, which is like men should be logical, unemotional, um, they should be independent. All of those things are not how we behave in relationship. In fact, evolutionary science says that if you were not dependent on other people, you know, back before we had Woolworths, um, then you would die. Independent people back in the day Mm -hmm. died because you actually need to depend on the group. But what we tell men from the time that they're boys is that they should not depend on anyone. They should be totally independent, powerful, strong, unemotional. So guys that really buy into this, and obviously there are some guys who resist, um, but guys who buy into it can find that the requirements of a relationship trigger them into feelings of shame. Now, some guys, when they feel shame like that, they may want to go and see a therapist because they want to sort it out. Or they may just become sort of silent and withdrawn or if they pair that shame with a level of entitlement, they may feel like, well, I don't want to feel this shame and, you know what, instead of me feeling shame, I'm going to make you feel shame. So they project that shame and that feeling of degradation, et cetera, onto their partner and they elicit this type of control so that they don't have to feel at the whim of this confusing feeling and Mm. the whim of a partner who often will be able to emotionally outgun them because they've not often been socialized, to have that emotional openness and emotional maturity. And, I mean, that's evident in a lot of, unfortunately, just regular garden-variety heterosexual relationships where women say, like, I can't get him to name a feeling, you know, aside from anger. So it's not just domestic violence offenders who are dealing with this kind of, like, sort of emotional malformation um, it is a something that is uh, that is that happens across all kinds of guys. But what happens in domestic violence offenders is, I guess, it, there's there could be backgrounds of trauma, there could be backgrounds of grief, and all these sorts of things that are unacknowledged and unresolved, or there could just be very high levels of narcissism and entitlement, or all of that wrapped up together, and and that's what sort of really kind of boils into this toxic shame environment. It then gets, you know. Um, they can supplant and and replace that feeling of toxic shame with a feeling of power and control and that makes them feel like they're they're in charge now and they won't be at the whim of it.
0: Jess went on to tell me about a couple called Sarah and Carl. They were in a long happy relationship together and Carl was supportive and caring until he wasn't anymore. Sarah did all the right things, but Jess tells us more about how quickly Patterns of coercive control can begin to emerge in a relationship.
1: So Sarah was a nurse in a trauma hospital. She knew exactly what domestic violence looked like. She was with this man who was, you know, all in favour of her independence and equality. And then the day that she announced that she was pregnant to him, he just turned on a dime. And to the kind of sadistic behaviour that we put at a pretty high end of coercive control, things like, setting rules around the house, what time the blinds are to be drawn, very micromanaging um, her life, but also really sadistic physical assaults to the point where he raped her in labour, that extreme kind of abuse that is like headline-making. But that happened so suddenly and Sarah did everything, you know, quote-unquote right in the sense that she told everyone, told her doctors, told his family and her family and their friends, got him to see a psychologist, and she she says that she worked him like a psych patient, that she basically just tried to make sure that he didn't have to make his own lunch, he didn't have to, you know, and herein lies the problem is that Sarah was trying to fix him, and by him just sort of going along with it, looks like he was being part of that, but instead she was basically just doing exactly what he wanted in the end, which was putting all of her focus on him. And her thing was like, I really want to save this marriage she was very invested in the idea of marriage and she was invested in who he was before he would turned on this dime to be this person that she didn't recognize in the end after their daughter was born and he refused to believe that their daughter had medical problems he ended up shaking alice to the point where sarah thought that alice had, had intracranial bleeds uh, you know sarah left immediately But by that stage, they've got a kid together. So there is a whole legal fight that's going to occur between them. It doesn't always, but often, especially with someone who has that controlling kind of nature. So they ended up in family court for years, upwards of $300,000 on family court. She was on food vouchers for years just dealing with the concurrent legal cases that preceded family court. Here's someone who does everything that she's supposed to, apparently, but this guy who turned on a dime, who for some reason the announcement of pregnancy triggered in him a type of Mr. Hyde character and no amount of the best specialists were going to fix that in him because he had no intention of addressing it in himself. He was just going along with it. And I think what it tells us about course of Control, I mean we can only hypothesise what went on in his head, but he obviously could identify with himself as someone who is supporting his his partner wife to be independent and have her own career and all the rest of it until a child was brought in, perhaps something in his upbringing told him that at that point he needs to be in charge. Maybe there was shame for him in the sense that she did have this independent life and that she wasn't just going to bow to him and that I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to say yeah. because and unfortunately... Um Judith Herman the Harvard psychiatrist talks about this in her book Trauma and Recovery is that perpetrators don't really want to be studied <laughs> and even if they do they don't necessarily have the insight that we require to really understand why they made certain choices or why behaviors started to emerge out of them Did like did he con Sarah into this like sense of security and willfully like hide this part of his personality No idea it doesn't seem likely but I really don't know if you've never
0: experienced any form of domestic abuse you may find yourself asking why didn't she leave why do they continue to stay if it were me i'd have had my bags packed and i'd be on a train right now heading out of there but separation is not a single act it doesn't just end because you've packed your bags and left It's often at that point of separation when women, their children, and their loved ones are at their most
2: vulnerable. But something you will have to work yourself around because it's critical is the fact that so much abuse takes place after women separate. And because separation is not a single act, as sometimes judges think who issue stay-away orders. It's not a single act, as sometimes police think, who file a 28-day protection order. It's a process of extrication. Women leave an average of three, five, seven times depending on the area. And if we don't document who has control of the credit cards, who has the money, who's monitoring all of her expenses and making her return things uh, when he doesn't like what she's getting, then we haven't begun to uh, conduct a serious crime investigation or really get the story we need.
0: Not only are women and children more vulnerable and at a greater risk of violence at the point of when they leave, but the longer a victim stays with their abuser, the harder it is to gain services.
2: Was that police who are returning again and again to the same house, or the same women were coming repeatedly to refuge, or the same women were showing up on the rolls of Maric or social work or any of the other uh, uh, sites at which women appear, After they showed up multiple times and nothing effectively changed in the family, services would begin to withdraw. The police response, even if they showed up at a call, became more and more perfunctory. The social work response, even if they were sympathetic with these families, began to think, well, this is the kind of family where this happens. It's tragic, but there's nothing we can do. In other words, just as the abuse was escalating, the entrapment, we were withdrawing our services because, don't you know, our interventions might even become part of the problem.
0: With services being withdrawn and a greater sense of isolation, leaving can be impossible, but not as impossible as it is right now. The health pandemic, COVID-19, has exacerbated domestic abuse, and with the restrictions directly enforced to keep us isolated, It's an incredibly dangerous time for people experiencing abuse right now.
2: Millions around the world have been forced into isolation as governments try and protect the most vulnerable, the old and the sick from COVID-19. But these lockdowns have exposed another category of vulnerable people
1: to that which they fear the most, domestic abuse
2: activists in Brazil, Germany and Italy have sounded the alarm. In China's Hubei province, the initial epicenter of the pandemic, reported cases of domestic violence in one county more than tripled during the lockdown, according to activists. The Catalan regional government said calls to its helpline rose by 20% in the first few days of the confinement period.
0: During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen surges around the world of domestic abuse. The UK's largest domestic abuse charity, Refuge, reported a 700% increase in calls to its helpline in a single day. And a recent survey by the Australian Institute of Criminology found that nearly one in 10 women had experienced domestic abuse from a current or former partner since the start of the pandemic. Two-thirds of these women said their partner had been abusive for the first time or that their violence had become more frequent and severe. Jess wrote an article recently for a publication in Melbourne called The Monthly, where she reported about the current state of domestic abuse in Australia and how abusers are also adapting to this crisis. Researchers from Monash University in Melbourne found that frontline victim support workers reported abuse was becoming more intense and abusers were beginning to twist COVID restrictions into everyday life. Victims have reported that their abusers have been up in their surveillance to track their movements since COVID. And many perpetrators are adapting their abuse and using the coronavirus as a tool. For example, there have been reports of partners being made to scrub themselves until they bled to ensure they were clear of the virus. Or abusers spreading rumours within their community that their partners have or had the virus to further isolate them from their family and friends.
1: I got to say, it was higher than I expected, and I, I knew that there'd been an increase, and that there always is. There always is an increase um, when there's a recession. There's an increase in domestic abuse. Interestingly, when families have to spend more time together, like over Christmas, there's also a spike in domestic abuse. So let's combine those two factors oh, wow. um, and and say like, okay, so we're spending more time together, and we're in a position of recession that is incredibly unpredictable. So it's just paint by numbers that domestic abuse is going to rise. Those numbers did alarm me. I also saw the family court chief judge, Will Ulstergren said that in his 30 years experience, he's never seen family violence so bad.
0: Violence in the home is getting worse, but the future for women and girls is compromised by the very fact we're even in a pandemic. Helen Lewis, a British journalist and author, pleaded with people at the very beginning to look beyond the cheerful COVID productivity, to look beyond finding new skills and busying yourself with home workouts or proving your sourdough. While comparisons were being made to men in history who did some of their most remarkable work during epidemics, Helen reminded us that although we can appreciate William Shakespeare and Isaac Newton did some of their best works while Europe was ravaged by the plague, Neither of them had to look after their children. Helen says that for those with child caring or care responsibilities in general, the coronavirus is unlikely to give them time to write Macbeth or start a scientific revolution. And this leads us to some fundamental questions. How has women's equality been affected by world-shaking events before and If we know financial abuse is key in coercive control, then what does women's economic independence look like post-COVID-19? History dictates that after a world event as colossal as this one, gender equality will set women back 20 to 30 years. So, could COVID-19 mark another turning point in history where women's freedoms are unwound?
1: What you realize when you study history and when you study the history of patriarchy particularly is you see how adaptable patriarchy is to any conditions. Over the, over the last like 100 years or so, what I found really interesting going back and looking at like, okay, so what were major mom- moments for women going forward or backwards? And, of course, during the Spanish flu, what was interesting is that at that time when the suffragettes, had been right on the precipice of getting the vote in in the States. Obviously, in Australia, we had the vote earlier, at least for um, non-Indigenous women. But right at the point where they're they're about to get the vote, then the World War happens. So it's like, sorry, ladies, you know, we can't deal with your issues right now. But then the Spanish flu happens. And suddenly it's like, not only do you have millions of men who have died, you've got millions more who are dying from the Spanish flu and women, of course. And so women are suddenly needed in the workforce and they're, they're recruited into the workforce, they're paid even equal wages to men, suddenly their concerns are validated because actually we need you guys now to come out of the home and be in public life. So the vote comes to them quite quickly in the States after World War One and after the Spanish flu. But, you know, at the end of World War Two, you got 25 years later, you've got women in public life, you've got women pursuing university education, um, you got ambition actually being sort of talked about in women's magazines, you know, all of the stories about women sort of dreaming of being pilots or being opera singers or being, you know, whatever. Ambition is Mm. not something that is spurned. But World War II comes along again. Women have to come into the workplace to make up for the men who are at war. But suddenly at the end of World War II, they move back into the home and not only they move back out out of their public life and into the home, But an entire cultural mythology comes up to convince women that their place is much better in the home, that it's unladylike to be educated, to to seek ambition. And you see the psychology of women from one generation to the next just go backwards, like not by 20 or 30 years, but by like 100 years, you know, to the idea that there's no possibility of pursuing public life. And it's not until Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystique in 1963 and talks about the fact that there's this thing that is like dogging women that is making them depressed. They're on antidepressants, they're on prescription medication because they're so unhappy but they can't figure out why. And it's like because they're not being given any options and they're having to spend their whole life doing the drudgery of homework. But, you know, so the point is it's like there we were at the end of World War II, the logical sort of progression was for women's rights to continue and yet they went so far backwards that they were virtually unrecognisable from the generation that had come before them. And I guess that looking at that, it's really incumbent on us not to take anything for granted. And where in 2020, we've got this amazing movement for women's equality, and not only that, but an incredible movement for truth-telling, not just in, on women's rights, but also First Nations issues, Black Lives Matter, all of those sorts of campaigns. But what COVID-19 is showing is that the structural inequality that still exists, even though our attitudes and awareness has, has progressed, we have a structural inequality that says when something massive like this happens in the way that COVID-19 is particularly happening, this recession, as different to others, is eroding mostly women's jobs but it is also women who are having to give up work in order to care for children, in order to care for loved ones who need care, you know it is a particular thing that is very different from other recessions. Um, and what we're seeing is the structural inequality, like the fact that women are more likely to do part-time and casual work, and those jobs are more likely to be the ones that go under under these in, in these times because arts, entertainment, hospitality—these are the sectors that are suffering. That structural mm-hmm. inequality means that it is so much easier for women to lose work or to to opt out of work than men at this point. It
0: appears we haven't really learned from very recent pandemics and epidemics, like the Ebola crisis, Zika, SARS. If we were to look at economically how women recovered from these pandemics, we could predict quite accurately what is happening now for women and what the future might look like for women after this pandemic. Researchers studying the knock-on effects of these viruses found that they had a significant impact on gender equality. Julia Smith, a health policy researcher, told the New York Times that in West Africa, everyone's income was affected by the 2014 Ebola outbreak, but men's income returned to what they had made before the outbreak much faster than women's did. At the time, there was a decline in childhood vaccinations too. And so eventually when children contracted the disease, maybe a year later, mothers had to take time off then to look after the children as well. And this is what we're seeing in COVID-19 right now. Women are picking up more of the childcare responsibilities and the domestic labor in Australia, in the UK and globally. We're also seeing that women's work has been reduced significantly more so than men's. And statistics show that women are now not applying for jobs either. The fact that women have slowed down in the application process signifies that women have already taken up roles as the domestic carers or labourers in the home. So what happened in West Africa following Ebola isn't an isolated event. The decline in women's financial independence is consistent and it's reflecting what we see now.
1: The reason why the UN has said that you need to have a gendered policy response to this issue and to this crisis is that basically the logic of this moment, unfortunately, is for women to go backwards and to go back into the home. Like if you have in Australia, the average man declares about $69,000 to the tax office and the average woman declares 48000 So if you've got a couple and you need the children homeschooled, then it's unfortunately depressingly logical for a lot of families for the woman to step out of the workforce.
0: And without that economic independence, I guess that's where further control can become imbalanced in a relationship, leaving women feeling trapped
1: even further. Exactly. And I've got to say... And this is why this this subject is just endlessly opening out, uh, because yeah. financial abuse and financial independence on the other side—that is so fundamental to domestic abuse. Financial independence is absolutely critical for women. The vulnerability that comes with being financially dependent on a man, which there may be all good reasons for it. There may be that you've decided to be a stay-at-home mother. There may be you know all legitimate reasons for it. But the fact remains that once you are dependent on your partner, you are vulnerable to their abuse. Now, for a lot of you know partners, there won't be an abusive situation, but for too many, there are. And financial abuse is actually more common to domestic abuse relationships than physical violence. So like 90 to 95% of women in domestic abuse experience financial abuse, whereas the experience of physical violence is much more varied. So I think that what COVID-19 is showing up is like these very what seemed like kind of boring things to be discussed on UN panels or whatever, you know, things that are not very sexy are actually at the very core of what we need to be addressing. And yet our government, you know, the first thing that they do when they decide to snap back to the pre-COVID economy is let's cancel free childcare, take childcare workers off JobKeeper and let's stimulate the economy by putting a whole shitload of money into the construction sector. (laughs) And let's also, while we're at it, double the fees for arts degrees, which are, you know, majority populated by women. So it's no, like, mystery what's going on here. And and not to say that they sit down and they kind of, like, you know, tap their fingers together um, uh, malevolently and decide how to screw <laughs> over women, but it's just that is the, that's where it emerges towards. That's where, because the real yeah. sectors are the sectors wh- that building happens in. And women really well, you know, if they're doing a bit of part-time work to make up the, the monetary, you know, gap, well, the family will just have to tighten their belts while we're in this crisis. And I think Simone de Beauvoir really sums it up. She just said, never forget that a political, economical or religious crisis will be enough to cast doubts on women's rights. These rights will never be vested. You'll have to stay vigilant your whole life. And that's the moment we're in now. Everything
0: that we have spoken about today is often framed as women's issues, but these are men's issues. Of course, they affect women, but violence against women is centrally about men. And traditional gender roles play a huge part in today's abuse.
2: The focus of regulation in coercive control, the major focus of regulation in coercive control is on those roles that women enact simply because they're women by default. How they clean, how they cook, how they care for their children, how they make love. All of the things we associate with women's gender roles are the specific focus of regulation in these families so that he imposes on her the very gender stereotypes that we have spent 50 years, not only in the women's movement, but in society as a whole, emancipating women from.
0: Evan Stark writes that masculinity in our society is dominated by the idea of being in control and addressing toxic masculine ideas of authority is far more complicated than addressing physical violence. The message to men is that they must remain in control the whole time and this act becomes more convoluted if women express their liberty. Women's freedom and independence threatens the perpetrator looking to remain in control. Jess explores Stark's theory of control in See What You Made Me Do but also looks extensively into shame because so much of male violence is rooted in shame. Helen Block Lewis in the 1970s branded shame the sleeper emotion, a powerful emotion that lurks behind depression, obsession, narcissism and paranoia. Jess writes that shame is not a learned emotion, but is one of the nine primary effects we were born with on the same level as anger, sadness, fear, joy, anticipation Surprise, dismell, and disgust. Shame is not there to just make us unhappy, but to prevent us from damaging our social relationships. And male shame is built around one rule and one rule only. Do not be weak. Be strong, be powerful, and remain in control always remain in control. The more closely an abuser identifies with gender norms, the more likely he will feel shame for not meeting them. One way to react to shame is to attack yourself. In its mildest form, this could be having a self-deprecating sense of humour, but at its worst, this is intense self-loathing, self-harm and at its most painful, suicide. Another reaction is to attack others. Jess describes this reaction as an abuser seeking a temporary moment of pride. Pride that can be short-lived and can lead to further shameful emotions but for that one moment they are in full control. They are powerful and they are strong. I wonder if we even know half of how big this problem is. We know that domestic abuse and coercive control happens in the LGBTQI community, but we don't have as much data and research on this. It is building and we will learn more, but at the moment, the majority of the research we have accessible is with binary people in hetero relationships. I don't think we know as much as we should about domestic abuse, but being aware of what some of these signs are is critical to becoming better acquainted with the techniques designed to control us. If we can look out for any warning signs of coercive control in our friends and in our own relationships, it may be life-saving. And I wonder if any of us know how big this problem is. After knowing so much and speaking with so many people, does Jess still find it hard to believe?
1: I find it hard to fully integrate just how widespread and how severe it is because it's so massive. It's like trying to really get a hold of climate change in your brain, you know? It's like the scale is so enormous, it is experienced not just in the home but, as I said, all throughout public life and in that way I think it's just it's impossible to integrate also because it's so opposite to what we believe or hope for, that the family is a place of nurturing, um, that the home should be the safest place for us. And all of the, you know, I'm sure people are very familiar with all the lines, the home is the most dangerous place for a woman, etc. But it's very hard for people to actually just really take into their heart what that means because it's exactly the opposite of what we've been raised to believe and what we need to believe in order to just continue living our lives and and trusting and falling in love and all the things we need to do to have a functioning society. It's what the truth is, and we've known this since 1975 when the first family violence surveys were done, the truth is, is that family is the most violent institution outside the military and the police.
2: Abuse can be prevented. It's one of the only crimes that we know that can actually be prevented. And the reason we know this is because the number of cases that are new cases in our community is very, very small. So what does this tell you? It tells you if we had effective early intervention, we could reduce the incidence of partner abuse by 86%. And now if I tell you it's one of the leading causes of female alcoholism, leading cause of female depression, leading cause of drug abuse, leading cause of female suicidality, leading cause of homelessness, leading cause of HIV. Reducing the incident, 84%, would have an amazing effect on women's health. It's clear
0: that for any country, any person who wants women to thrive, they have to address domestic abuse and coercive control has to be part of the prosecution process. Gender equality following historical pandemics cannot be ignored. Recent pandemics have given us an indication of what our near future might look like and researchers predict that women's economic equality will take a 30-year hit following COVID-19. Women will not be reflected in the workplace in 2021 as they were in 2019. With women having less opportunity to thrive outside of the home, this could mean that coercive control and financial abuse becomes a reality for more and more women. If you found today's episode difficult to listen to and you need somebody to speak to, you can find support helplines in today's episode notes. So please reach out and our email address is there too if you want to give us a message. But ultimately, take care of yourself, keep an eye on your friends and family. And in response to this episode, I'm going to try and gather as much information as I can and continue to develop my knowledge on this subject. If you want to develop your own knowledge on this subject, Jess Hill's See What You Made Me Do is essential. And you can find a link to her website in our episode notes too. You've been listening to Shut Up, She's Talking, and that was Jess Hill. And I'll finish up today with the words from the second wave French feminist, Simone de Beauvoir, that Jess quoted earlier. Never forget that a political, economical or religious crisis will be enough to cast doubts on women's rights. These rights will never be vested. You'll have to stay vigilant your whole life. Thanks for listening. Thank you.